Okay, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 reads like this. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This last phrase, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, requires, I believe, a more extended treatment than what I was able to give it last lesson. I truly believe, and I, and I say this with all of my heart, and I want you to really, really listen to this. I truly believe that the failure to forgive others, and I'm talking about believer to believer, or the believers in view, the failure to forgive others is a leading cause of shipwreck in the spiritual life. So we're going to take a couple of lessons in a timeout, if you will, but, but, a, but a directed parenthesis on an extremely important topic. And I want you to, to pay very, very close attention because life is short and we don't need to waste any time by living more time in a state of unforgiveness. I'm talking about our lack of forgiving someone else than we absolutely have to. This has, this has incredible ramifications for our personal life. Some Christians wonder why they're totally unhappy, and they say, I'm doing everything right. You know, I'm going to church every Sunday. I'm giving faithfully. I take care of the missionaries, and I do all these different things. But when you dig deep enough, one of the reasons why their spiritual life may not be what they want it to be is because somewhere along the line, there is somebody that they're holding a grudge against. And, and it's not... And it's not a light thing. This is a very serious thing. This is no theoretical discussion that we are about to have. This is very, very important. And considering that one day our Lord is going to sit us down. He's going to be sitting. I'm afraid we'll be standing or kneeling. But we will stand before him and we will be evaluated on what it was we accomplished in this life. Whether it was agathos, good, or phallos, worthless. This is something that we need to take seriously. So we can't just let it slide with just a, a moment or two's attention, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So we need to, we need to see the basis upon which Christ makes this command first, and then next week we're going we're gonna to discuss the command itself and the ramifications to us personally. Because forgiveness... Believer to believer cannot be properly understood without comprehending and appreciating, fully appreciating, the forgiveness that we have already received from God. Now, I, I know because I've had thousands of conversations, probably not hyperbolically speaking, with regard to this. You know, and and the, the way it usually goes is this. I'm really upset with so-and-so. Well, have you forgiven them? No, because you don't know what they've done to me. Well, I know what Christ did for you. And I know what you did to him in terms of you did it and I did it and everybody else in here. The, what we did that had to be forgiven. So when God tells us to forgive others, it's no light thing. Just like he tells us to feed our enemies, to love our enemies. Guess what? He already did that, didn't he? Remember, because while we were his enemies, Christ died as a substitute for us. So this is a very, very serious thing. In order to, to really comprehend the forgiveness that we've received... We need to recall to mind that while psychologists speak of guilt feelings, you've heard that, they don't talk about sin, they don't talk about anything that's actually 
objectively right or wrong, but because people have guilt feelings about what it is they've done. Psychologists may speak of that, but the scriptures paint a clear picture that, that men are actually guilty, not just guilt feelings, but they were actually guilty of violating God's transcendent moral law. And there is a transcendent moral law, which is prescribed by a transcendent moral law giver. So it's not simply feelings of guilt that had to be dealt with, but the reality of real guilt, real guilt before a holy God. And that real guilt the Bible calls sin. Sin has been defined in a variety of ways by a variety of very fine theologians, but the one that we'll use for this study I think is the best definition, and that is sin is anything that violates the holiness of God. Or sin is anything that violates God's holy standard. God's holiness, on the other hand, is sometimes understudied. I think, though, that there are five truths that must be remembered about this aspect of his infinite perfections. About holiness, there are five things that we need to remember. First, God cannot produce sin. It's impossible. It's one of those things, can God create a rock that's so heavy that he can't lift? Well, also, can, can God sin? No. Uh, that, that doesn't speak to his omnipotence. It speaks to his internal his Infinite perfections. God cannot produce sin. Second, God cannot promote sin. Third, God does not permit sin. God does not produce sin. He doesn't promote sin, and he doesn't permit sin. But in addition, this is important. This is key. So many people miss this. God cannot fellowship with sin. And finally, God's holiness demands that sin be punished or sin be dealt with. Now, all of these things we've got to get or we won't get the idea that we have a responsibility to forgive others. Let me say them again. I saw some, some of you didn't get it. God cannot produce sin. God cannot promote sin. God cannot permit sin. God cannot fellowship with sin. And God's holiness demands that sin must be punished. Now, th this is all critical. Because if we don't get this, and I know, I know that the way that mine thinks, well, I'm all, I know God's holy. And all, well, if you, if you know he's holy and you know what he's done for you, then why aren't you forgiving other people? Why are you holding grudges against other people? Why do you have vindictiveness toward other people? Why are you taking revenge toward other people? Why are we ignoring this? If we know all of it, I wonder if we haven't really completely absorbed and completely thought about it. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning that we participate in communion, ought to be a Sunday morning where we think, look at what God has done for me. Now, maybe it's not so hard for me to forgive so-and-so what they have transgressed against me. If I've done this against God and he could, he could forgive me under the right circumstances, then I ought to be able to forgive as well. So God demands, God's holiness demands that sin be punished. That punishment for sin, of course, was accomplished on the cross. I think that's something that all believers would understand. God the Father poured out his wrath against sin and the individuals who committed it. Remember, we can't really divorce sin from the individual. Sometimes we try to do that, but biblically, it's not as clear-cut as sometimes we make, in, make it sound like in sermon. But God's wrath was poured out upon sin and the individuals who committed it when he judged all of that in his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So he took the bullet for us, to put it in more modern terms. He took the punishment for sin upon himself. When Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question is, of course, rhetorical. He knows why he's being forsaken. He's being forsaken because he who knew no sin was made sin for us and that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that's key, he died as a substitute for us. And he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Now, this is very important to note. Jesus did not sin. The text never says he sinned. He didn't become sinful. He was made sin for us, meaning that our sins were imputed to him. Now, I know that's a technical theological word, but if we're going to ever understand why we need to forgive one another, we've got to understand this. And, and some people would call it a judicial inter, um, imputation, meaning that if we were to wrap our sins up in, in, a, in a ball like this, Jesus had no affinity for our sin at all. Jesus, Jesus had our sins laid upon him by the Father. Jesus took those sins upon himself, and then he was judged for what he was holding for us. These weren't his. These were ours. But he was holding them when the wrath of God was poured out upon them. And that's why he screams, literally roars, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a rhetorical question. He knew because he was the wrath of God was being poured out upon him because he had accepted our sin. Now, he didn't become sinful. That's key. He didn't become sinful. But he, became, he was made sin for us. And that's extremely important. So rather than God judging me for my rebellion against him, he judged Christ for my rebellion against him. Now you're starting to see why Paul would say, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You see why? Because so much has been done for us already. We, we cannot shake our fist at God. We cannot say, but you don't understand the situation. You don't understand how mean they've been to me. We have a responsibility. Jesus died as a substitute for me. He died as a substitute for you. He paid the price for my disobedience. He paid the price for your disobedience. And at the moment I place my faith in him, God the Father takes the finished work of Christ on the cross and applies it to my account, and I am forgiven. Further, I am declared righteous. There are many other things, but those are two biggies. I'm forgiven, which means my sin, the penalty for sin has been washed away, and then I've been, that's the negative part. The positive part that is I'm declared righteous. My, his righteousness is given to me. In practical terms, this means I am spared the death penalty. I'm spared the penalty that was due to me. But it's eternal death. Eternal separation from God and his blessing. That's what eternal death is. Now, technically speaking, if we, if we were to dig deep enough into it, when someone dies and goes to hell, it's, it's, it's not as though they are separated from God in a, in, a, in a sense of totality. They are still associated with God, but they're just associated with his wrath permanently, forever. So there is that association, but it's a negative association, not a positive association. So that's why we say that we are separated from God and his blessing, the place of blessing with God, and that's forever. But I want you to know well, and this is important too, all of this is critical for our spiritual lives. I was not forgiven on the day of the crucifixion. That's a theological error. I was not forgiven on the day of the crucifixion. So I was not forgiven at the cross. Judgment of my sin occurred at the cross. 
forgiveness of my sin awaits the moment that I trusted Christ for eternal life, to forgive my sins and eternal life. Before that, I was still dead in my trespasses and sin. And this is crucial and far too often misunderstood. The atoning work of Christ on the cross was sufficient for every person who has ever taken a breath on this earth. That means that Christ died for all. He died to make salvation possible for all. He paid the he paid the eternal penalty for everyone's sin. Judgment was made at the cross. But that gift is not going to be applied to you personally until you accept it. Some people have an enormous problem with the, with the doctrine of unlimited atonement. That's what I just described. Because they feel like that if, if the doctrine of unlimited atonement was applied in the way they think it should be applied, then everybody's saved. No. In fact, even, even those who are hyper-Calvinists who would believe that the atonement was only for the elect have to admit that before that elect person comes to Christ, they are still dead in their trespasses and sins as well. So the atoning work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. Meaning, the death of Christ on the cross renders all men savable, but it doesn't save anyone until that individual places their faith in Christ. What does this mean in practical terms? Well, it means this. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, placed your faith in him and him alone, your sins have not been forgiven. They were judged at the cross, but you have not received the personal forgiveness of those sins, and you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Norman Geisler, who most of you have met, who's spoken at the church several times, said this. He said, the actual canceling of the debt is conditional upon belief, upon actual acceptance of it. Hence, there is no contradiction when there is no forgiveness of those who choose to attempt to pay their own debt. Likewise, those who are forgiven do not have to pay their own debt since Christ's payment has been applied to them. And I say, well, that's all well and good. That's Geisler's opinion. Is it, but it is, a, it is, is it a biblical concept? Well, yes, it is. Ephesians chapter 2, 1, speaking to the Ephesian believers about a time before they were saved. Paul says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, that can't be physical death because he's speaking to people who are alive. He's talking about spiritual death. There was a time in the past when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Colossians 2, 13 says almost the same thing. And when you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, 21 says, I go away and you will seek me, and you shall die in your sin. Now that's pre-cross, but Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 are post-cross. Again in verse 24, Jesus says of John chapter 8, I said therefore to you, to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sin. If you have never personally trusted Jesus Christ, and I have no doubt about anybody in this room, but anybody hearing my voice on, on, in some sort of uh, media at some time in the future, if you have never personally trusted Jesus Christ, sin is still a very real problem for you. Sin is an issue for you, and it has to be that you have not dealt with it yet. Jesus dealt with it on the cross, but you haven't received that gift he paid for the gift. The gift is wrapped. The gift is ready to give to you. All you have to do is receive it. Then we can say we have been forgiven our sin. So I want you to remember it this way. Judgment of sin occurred on the cross. Forgiveness of sins 
awaits the moment of faith. Judgment of sins occurred on the cross. Forgiveness awaits the moment of faith. When you receive, by faith, Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's when you're forgiven. And you'll never have to pay the eternal penalty that was due to you. Because Jesus paid it. And you've accepted that payment as a benefit to you. I think most of us know that, but what about sins then that are committed after salvation? If we've been forgiven, and we just said that we have, our sins have been forgiven, and if we'll never have to pay that eternal debt for ourselves, what does the Bible mean then when it speaks of confession of sin for the believer, for the believer's forgiveness of sins? Is it all a big contradiction? Well, no, it's not. We, we could say if the believer's sins have been forgiven, then why do we have to confess our sins as believers to be forgiven? Well, that's a fair question. And that comes under the category of confession of sin by the believer after salvation. What does this all mean? Well, the first thing that we need to realize is that the Bible does speak to the believer about confessing one's sins after salvation. That's a reality. That's not an opinion. That's a reality. We must do something with it. And while there are different opinions on the precise nature of the confession, of the act of confession, there's no doubt that the Bible speaks of the concept. And that's got to be our first observation. The Bible does say that we need to do it. And that's clear. So now we need to kind of take a step back and maybe understand why we need to do it. But the Bible says that we need to. And there are differences. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, sees the need for confession, but then they see that we need to make that confession to a priest. But you see, they still see the need for confession. Most Protestants hold that every believer is a priest, and therefore the responsibility, they have the responsibility to make their own confession before God. But my point is both Roman Catholics and Orthodox faith as well but Roman Catholics and Protestants both believe that we need to confess our sins after salvation. Both groups recognize the necessity for confession. As to the question of why the believer needs forgiveness if he or she is already forgiven, Lewis Perry Chafer, I think, said it better than I can, so I'm going to borrow his words. Now, it's a bit of an extended quote but it will be worth your concentration if you can follow it. I promise you. This is what Schaefer said. He said, The foundational truth respecting the believer in relation to his sins, now the believer in relation to his sins, is that when he was saved, all of his trespasses, so far as any condemnation is concerned, were forgiven. Did you catch that? All of his sins in terms of any condemnation were forgiven. So complete provides the, proves this divine healing that with all sin it can be said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The believer is not condemned and therefore shall not come into judgment. It need only be remembered that since Christ has borne all sin and since the believer's standing is complete in the risen Christ, he is perfect forever by reason of being in Christ. That's a permanent relationship, really. As a member of the household and family of God, should he sin, 
Of course he is. As any child subject to chastisement from the Father, but never condemned with the world. So when we sin as a believer, we are subject, and this is me speaking, not Schaefer, as, as, as we sin as a believer, we are subject to something. Chastisement, discipline, punishment, but not eternal condemnation. That has been settled. Now, there are those who would consider themselves Ar Arminian, as opposed to Calvinistic, that believe that when we sin, then we incur the condemnation of God again. Or when we sin enough, we will incur the condemnation again. Many of our Pentecostal friends believe that as well. Unfortunately, it's, it's not a biblical concept. Actually, I would say fortunately, it's not a biblical concept. When we trust Christ to forgive our sins and grant us eternal life, we are forever forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin. But as a believer, when I sin, then I still incur something negative between God and myself. And that negativity is typically called a loss of fellowship as opposed to a loss of salvation. So if, if faith alone in Christ alone is the divinely prescribed remedy for the taking away of that eternal penalty of sin, and there are many, many verses that speak of that, Faith alone in Christ alone. If that's the remedy that God has prescribed, not man, but God has prescribed for the taking away of the eternal penalty of sin, then what is the divinely prescribed remedy for the restoration of a lost fellowship relationship with God? And, of course, one of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, one that you memorized a long time ago, gives you the answer to that question. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, before I analyze that verse specifically, I want to make sure that we're all aware of the context of that verse. It's critical because it surely must grieve the Holy Spirit when any Bible teacher doesn't take things in its context. And there's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of sloppy Bible study that's done. And it's being done to the detriment of those who are very willing hearers. So we need to be careful when we study the Bible. In terms of context, considering the difference between the Gospel of John and 1 John. That's the first issue we have to consider when we consider the context of 1 John. Because some people, I don't know if you realize this, some people believe that 1 John 1, 9 is a salvation verse. I mean, an eternal salvation verse, one that would you need to do these things in order to have the eternal penalty for sin removed. I wouldn't hold that, and actually most that do careful Bible study wouldn't hold that either. But this is the one, or one of the reasons why. Remember back to our study of the Gospel of John now. Not the first epistle, but the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the only book in the Bible that has as its expressed purpose in the text the evangelization of the unbeliever. In other words, it's the only book in the Bible that has as its primary audience unbelievers. Of course, there's a lot of information in there for believers. That's why we spent a year or so or more studying that book. And I think we were all blessed by it. That's the Gospel of John. But when we get to the first epistle of John, the audience has changed and the purpose has changed. That's critical. John, in, in his first letter, is now speaking to believers, not to unbelievers. And he's not speaking to Believers about how to 
maintain their salvation or, or to an unbeliever about how to get saved. He's speaking to believers about the responsibility that we have to live a particular kind of life after we're saved. Now, do you see the distinction? If we just got that, you're going to be way ahead of the game in understanding what's going on in 1 John. The Gospel of John, written primarily to the unbeliever, to tell them how to get saved in the first place. The first letter of John, what we call 1 John, or the first epistle of John, is written primarily to the believer to tell them how they should live as a Christian. So just that will help us with the context. If we start, if we start messing up the audience, that's why, these, oh, that's why these introductory things are not just throw-ins. That's why they are important. Who's the audience? To, who, who is the human author under the ministry of the Holy Spirit speaking to? And if we get that wrong, we're going to have interpretive problems throughout the entirety of the book. And it's never just a person's opinion, by the way. The audience is pretty easy to grasp from the text itself. And here we know that the audience are those who are believers. So 1 John 1, 9 is not a verse not a verse describing what it takes to receive the forgiveness of the eternal penalty of sin. If it is, then the gospel of John, which has had as its expressed purpose the evangelization of the unbeliever, if confession of one's sins is a necessary condition for the receiving of eternal life and the expulsion of the penalty of eternal condemnation, if that is one of the conditions... And by the way, you have neighbors and friends that believe this. So one of these days it's going to come up in conversation. If that's one of the conditions, then over in the Gospel of John, John made a pretty serious mistake because he left it out. There's but one condition that John ever gives in his Gospel for the receiving of eternal life, for the removal of the condemnation, the penalty of eternal death, and that's faith alone in Christ alone. He didn't say anything about confession. In fact, he doesn't say anything about repentance there either. The only thing he describes is faith, faith in the proper object. So you see, this is, a, this is almost a lesson in Bible study method, but we need to know to whom the book is being written. The Gospel of John to unbelievers primarily, but believers secondarily. The first epistle of John to believers, and that is huge. First, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, you've read these before, and you, speaking to believers, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We see here that believers can and do sin after salvation. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Please don't do it, but does anybody disagree with that? I would hope not. We're going to have you examined if, if you think that you've never sinned after salvation. We're not promoting sin, but the text actually says here that if we were to claim such nonsense, we would be lying, and the truth is not in us. And then in between verses 8 and 10, which basically say that, we have this really well-known passage that most of you have had drilled into your soul, but that is worth reconsidering and listening to afresh from time to time. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There was a, a couple of fellows in that, that ministered in the state north of here that several years back thought that they would go through this Greek text and, 
and analyze it from a grammatical perspective, and they said, well, this is a third-class condition. Now, most Greek grammarians don't use those classifications anymore, but they said it should be like this. If we confess our sins, maybe we will and maybe we won't, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, my friend, that's complete nonsense. That, that, that betrays a total lack of understanding of Greek grammar. I mean, a total, that wouldn't get you past the first couple weeks in, in Greek. No, it, it's, it's something that most modern grammarians it's now called a future more vivid clause. And it, it means something like this. It's a conditional clause. It means it's an if clause. That's what a conditional clause means. If you do A, then B will happen. That's what a future more vivid clause is. If you do this, then this is going to happen. Now, I'm going to have to ask you to re remember this if you can until next week because we're going to come across something next week that looks almost like this when it comes to the believer. But it's not quite the same. But, but I'm setting the groundwork now for it. This is a future more vivid clause. If you do A, then B will happen. For example, if the doctor does the surgery, then the doctor will get paid. Now, the doctor may or may not do the surgery, but if he does it, he'll get paid. You see? Now, we, how nonsensical would it be if the doctor does the surgery, maybe he will and maybe he won't, but he's going to get paid anyway? You see, even in English we know that that's silly, but certainly that's not the, um, the case in, in Greek grammar. Confession is the condition given by God for the forgiveness of post-salvation sins and return to fellowship with himself. Fellowship is the Greek term koinonia. It indicates a close, intimate, personal relationship. In classical Greek, it was sometimes used of the marriage relationship. That's the kind of closeness that, at least theoretically, should be there in that relationship. So confession is the condition given by God for the forgiveness of post-salvation sins and a complete return to fellowship with him. But if we choose not to confess our sins, then we're not forgiven our post-salvation sins. We do not incur condemnation for that. Are you, are you seeing the theological distinction? We don't incur condemnation for that, but we do lose something. We lose the personal intimacy that we should have with God moment by moment. And what, end up, what ends up happening is, as a believer, we live what the, the Bible would describe, what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as a, as a phallos life, P-H-A-L-O-S, as a life of worthlessness. Does anybody in here really want to live a worthless life? Now, all of us, if we could go back, we'd do things differently. I, I certainly would. There's certainly some things I would definitely do a different way. But on the whole, I, I think all of us would say, on, on the whole, we want to live a life that pleases God. On the whole. We don't want to live a life of worthlessness. Now, if, if we live a life totally outside of God's fellowship, then it's going to be difficult to describe that life as anything but worthless. Now, you are not worthless as an individual because you're a child of God. I don't want you to ever think that. You are in Christ. You are, you are part of God's royal family. You're a very special, you're a new spiritual creation. 
but we still have to do something with the life that we're given after we're saved. We have that responsibility. And if we choose, willingly choose, not to, for, not to confess our sins, then we're not forgiven. We haven't been restored to fellowship with God. We're not forgiven from the temporal consequences of sin. We've already been forgiven from the eternal consequences of sin. I hope everybody has that. If not, please stick around afterwards. And I'm, I want to make sure everybody's clear because without what we have taken a look at tonight, what we study in either the next lesson or the next two, depending on how long it takes us to go through them, there will be no foundation for it. And if we're really ever going to grasp this thing about forgiving one another, we have, to, we have to fully buy into what was done for us at the cross and the relationship we have with God in terms of his promise. If we do this, he will do that. So just for the record, when we sin after salvation, it doesn't mean we re-incur condemnation. No. We will never pay the eternal penalty for our own sins. Jesus already did that and we've accepted that. But if we refuse to confess our sins, then we are not forgiven from the temporal consequences of our sins. Okay? Now, in the closing moments that we have, let's consider briefly what is meant by the term confession, Greek term homo legeo. You've heard that before. But there are a lot of different ways to describe what a, what a biblical confession is. And I'd like to... Describe it this way, and I'd like for those who teach, particularly in the children's department, I'd like for us all to use somewhat similar terminology if possible. Because I, I think if, if we don't, we're going to have too much confusion in the ranks as these kids grow up. But confession, or homologeo, is an honest admission to God that whatever I did that was wrong was indeed sinful. It's an honest admission to God that what I did was indeed sinful, that what I did was wrong, and that it violated his holy standard. Uh, conf confession is an honest admission to God that what was done was sinful, that what we did was wrong, that what we did violated his holy standard. So it's more than just speaking the word. It's speaking the word with an understanding that you're speaking it to a holy God and you're admitting it to, to him that, hey, listen, I, I was wrong. That was sinful on my part. Uh, that, was, uh, that violated your holiness. However you want to put it, that's between you and your eternal heavenly father, your personal eternal heavenly father. He's not a machine, so you talk to him as though he's your father. But however you put it, it's an open admission, father, I was wrong. Father, I've sinned. However, however you want to listen. But just to say, Father, I've sinned, and leave it at that, it's not going to cut it. Unless it's only one. <laughs> and, and maybe there's only one sin you're, you're speaking about. But, but typically, we need to say, Father, this is, I'm not going to tell you mine. But this, Father, and then you, you lay it on him. This is what I've done. And I was wrong. That's what he wants to hear. Now, as George Mueller, who's going to be here Sunday night, loves to say, when we confess our sins, we're really telling God something he already knows. We're just admitting to him that what we know, what we did was wrong. Just like the child with chocolate all over their face and a cookie jar in their hand, 
when approached by a mother, and the mother says, hey, a little sport, what did, you, what did you do? And the kid says, well, I, I ate the cookie, but she told me not to eat. Now, the mother already knew full well that that child had eaten the cookies. It's not Sherlock Holmes stuff here. It's not like we're telling God something he done. No. You see, but we're admitting to him that the child's admitting to mom, yeah, I, I did the wrong thing. Now, how silly would it be for that child to look up at the mother and say, nothing, I didn't do anything. Well, nothing, nothing at all. And she's going to say, well, then what is that chocolate all over your face? Just like Saul was told one time, you know, then, then what, are, what is the bleeding of that sheep, those sheep that I hear in my ears? You remember that? If you, if you did what you were supposed to, like you just told me you did, then what is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? So a confession is an honest admission to God that something that we did was wrong. It's coming face to face with something that we've done and acknowledging to God that it was indeed sinful. It's something personal, never mechanical. And since it is personal and not mechanical, listen well, note well, since it is personal and not mechanical, when you are making this confession, you may very well feel some sense of guilt when you make it. And to feel guilt when you're guilty is not sinful. To feel guilt after you've been forgiven is very well could be considered sinful. But to feel guilty when you're guilty is just normal. In fact, there are terms psychiatrists have for people who are guilty and don't feel any guilt at all. Now, the feeling of guilt makes you no more forgiven. I need to be careful of this. The feeling of guilt makes you no more forgiven than you would be without the feeling of guilt. But in a healthy individual, both mentally, emotionally, but especially spiritually, if you are guilty, then it's not unreasonable to assume that a feeling of guilt may accompany the reality of guilt. Again, the, the, you can't gin up a guilty feeling and think you're more forgiven. The condition is confess that sin. But if we're doing it openly and honestly, and we're doing it to a holy God who had to send his son to pay for that sin on the cross, then it's not totally unreasonable that there may be some feeling of guilt that accompanies the sin. When we confess, when we admit to God that we've sinned, when we acknowledge our sin, God forgives us every sin, every time. Now, that's key. That's key for understanding what we'll study next week. He's faithful and he's just. And all known sin must be confessed. All known sin must be confessed for there to be a restoration of fellowship. You, you can't just pick one and ignore all the rest and say, I'm not ready to deal with that. I'm going to be forgiven anyway, but I'm not going to confess that. And I'm talking about something I know is a sin, and I know I've done it, but I don't want to go there. So I just, I just confess the ones that I know I'm ready to deal with. That, that's, that's not what is said here. Let's say if, if we know that we've lied to a friend, stolen a bicycle, and are in the middle of an extramarital affair, because I don't know why you steal a bicycle. If you're that, that's just what came to mind. So let's go with it. Lied to a friend, stolen a bicycle, and you're in the middle of an extramarital affair. It's a, sort of a weirdo. But you'd have to be a weirdo to do all that stuff anyway. If you say, well, I'm ready to deal with the fact that I've lied to my friend, and I'm ready to deal with the fact that I've stolen the bicycle, but I'm not ready to deal with this extramarital affair yet. And you confess the first two, but you knowingly refuse to, re to confess the third. Don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that you've been re restored to fellowship. No, you haven't, because you refuse to deal with something that you know is a sin. Now, if by chance you've 
lied to a friend, stolen a bicycle, and you uh, cheated on your time card without knowing it the week before. You put down something that you didn't, you didn't really know about, or you did and you just didn't remember that you had cheated on your time card, and you confess the first two, then, of course, you'll be forgiven. But you'll be forgiven all the ones that you didn't confess, provided you confess all the ones that you remember. Now, this may cause us all to spend maybe just a little bit of extra time in prayer tonight. And maybe we might want to set aside ten minutes instead of five. I joke. But we need to keep close accounts. Don't let it build up all day long because there's no point in spending that any time out of fellowship that is unnecessary in building up a list that we can't even remember all the things that we have committed. Now, we're out of time, but let me give you this one last idea to take home with you. Because it's important, too. I, m I mentioned a minute ago that John doesn't mention repentance as a necessary condition for the receiving of eternal life. A lot of salvation tracts do. But John never mentions that. And I know why they do, because there are other passages that, that, that seem to bring it into the mix. We'll talk about that another time. But confession restores the believer to fellowship with God. But where does repentance come in? Turning away from that sin is what's going to keep you in that fellowship relationship. So we never are going to minimize the importance of repentance. We would never do that. But we just need to keep them straight. Confession is what God requires of me to be returned to fellowship. Repentance is what God requires of me to stay in fellowship. Now, with that foundation, next week, Lord willing... We're going to take a look at some, some passages in the New Testament in particular that speak of the idea of us forgiving each other. But they're going to be based upon, the foundation is going to be based upon what Christ has done for us. The fact that we have been forgiven much. So it shouldn't be that big of a deal for us to forgive someone little. Now, we have to, if you'll think about tonight's lesson as we're going over the next one, that phrase will make sense to you. But if we don't keep in mind our so great salvation and the way that God has taken away our eternal penalty of death and the way that he's willing to restore us to fellowship, then we'll never get what's coming up next week. I hope, you, hope you'll be able to make it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die as a substitute for us that we can receive eternal life in the forgiveness for the eternal penalty for sin simply by coming to you within the empty hands of faith. And that we can receive the forgiveness of the temporal manifestation and the temporal consequences of our sin as believers, the loss of fellowship by coming to you with, in a sense with the empty hands of confession. Help us to do this, Father. And now, Father, convict us, we pray, this week as we prepare for the study of what's coming up in the next couple of lessons. Help convict us, we pray, of the enormity of what you've already done for us so that when we see the command of, that, of what you've told us to do for others, we'll see in, when kept in perspective, it's really a small thing. Help us in this regard, Father. Help us not to, to uh, come upon spiritual shipwreck in our life because of a lack of forgiveness. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.